And at that point, I did what any smart investor would do. I sold half of it. I let the rest ride. That doubled again. And at that point, I got uncomfortable. I thought, this is a board member. What do people think? Maybe they'll think I've gotten insider information from my board member. He's high enough up I could have. And I don't want that perception. And what if this thing goes up even more? And then, So I sold it off. The stock ended up going from making this up from 100. It, it went up 30-fold. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. This episode is sponsored by ASTOTS Academy's Valuation Masterclass. They call it the boot camp for valuation because it takes almost 200 hours and students must value about 20 companies to graduate. Maybe we need to add in Logitech as one of the companies that our students will value. It really is the complete proven step-by-step -step course to guide you from novice to valuation expert. Go to myworstinvestmentever.com deals before March 31st, 2021 to claim your 30% discount for podcast listeners. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts, and I'm here with featured guest Bracken Darrell. Bracken, are you ready to rock? I am. Now, I'm going to introduce you to the audience. It's short and sweet. Bracken P. Darrell is the president and CEO of Logitech. And the company is worth now 12 times more than when he started back in 2012. 12. Got it. So take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Yeah, I grew up in, uh, in Kentucky. So in the middle of the country, for those of you who are not Americans and aren't familiar with the US. I went to college in Arkansas. So I went to another place in the middle of the country. And then from there, I went back to, I worked in accounting and then I moved into marketing and product management, worked at big company after big company. And I arrived at Logitech eight years, it'll be nine years in April, actually. And how did you arrive there? What was it? Was it a, what was that process? Well, I really would, uh, I had gotten very excited about the concept of design and I was running the Braun business out of Germany for, for six years total. And in between, I went to Whirlpool and, and I, I love the idea of trying to create a design company or take an existing company and try to turn it into a design company. And the design company to me meant bring design and design thinking into everything and also using it to enter new businesses, new, new categories. And so when I got the call from a recruiter about coming to Logitech, I thought that looks like a good place to do that. Mm. I'm curious when you first came in, the idea of design, did everybody on board with that? Or was there like some like, well, we're not really a design company. We're more of a manufacturing company or whatever. Yeah, I mean, we were an engineering company. And, and I think I didn't talk about it very much in the beginning. I knew what I wanted to do, but I talked about it with the board before I came. But inside the company, I didn't make a big deal out of that at all. When I did finally start saying we're going to become a design company, I, I immediately got a backlash from our strong engineering culture. And the engineer said, this guy's going to screw up the company. You're going to turn us into a, a, a decoration company and we're going to lose in, the, in our businesses, which are so heavily into engineering. They didn't understand that, that, and I didn't do a good job of explaining, that design, in my sense, is building a product and experience around the user. And that unlocks the power of your engineering and makes it relevant. So later they understood that. Everybody's totally supported now. And just out of curiosity, during that time, you know, before you arrived or when you first arrived, how did engineers or people within the company design their products? Were they less connected with the customer? Does design, 
when you talk about design, and I'm thinking about you know myself and all of the other business owners and people that are working for businesses, I'm trying to think about that engagement and feedback loop with the customer. How do we make that better? And you know, what was your experience with that? Well, I think the company had always done a good job with products and was very innovative. And we used design firms on the outside. But I think by the time I'd gotten there, we'd gone through three or four years of where I would say we became too focused on features and technology and not enough on users. And as a result, our products were a sea of black plastic. Mm -hmm. They all looked like they came out of the same room and the same materials and the same. And I'm generalizing, but that's not far from the truth. And I, I think that that's because the design process wasn't, wasn't fixated on really our creation process wasn't fixated on building something around the user. It was fixated on improving what we made. And so what we changed was we, as we started to build design in the company, we, we brought, literally brought in designers, but we also, that bled into everyone's view of what a, an innovative product could be. It needed to be something that delighted the user that helped users in ways that they didn't even know they had problems. And that has really spread throughout the company. Now we win more design awards per revenue dollar than any, I think about any other company. And, and we're, we're named as one of the top nine design companies in our most innovative design companies in Fast Company last year. So we're, and we still have a long way to go to be great, in my opinion. It's interesting because, you know, for the listeners out there, look at your desk, look around you and look for a Logitech product. I have my Brio camera that I'm using right now. I have my MX Anywhere 2 mouse. And I also always have my, uh, I don't know, I call it a clicker. What is this called actually? Presenter. I can't. presenter. That's a presenter. Presenter. I always have this as a speaker, and that's three products of yours on my desk. But I think one of the things that's kind of fascinating about it is that if we go back in time to 2012, and I would say that most, of, most companies were almost giving up on the hardware aspect of computers. I know Intel, as an example, looking, you know, many of these companies were just abandoning it and saying, it's just, it's all going to be outsourced, low labor costs to build it and there's no point in competing so I just I'm curious about the story and we're going to get into the stories of loss but I'm just curious like you know how, how hard is it to compete in this space when you want to bring design you want to bring customer into it but yet you're also in kind of a hardware space where there is a very competitive element you know it's a any any business worth being in is competitive because if it weren't if it if it's attractive it's going to attract competitors and so you know, it is a very competitive space, but there's a place to win in better experience in every business. And so we, we've grown market share in every single category. We're now over 50 share in many of our categories. We started much lower in, in most of them. So I think there's no substitute for really understanding users and trying to constantly iterate to get the value equation right for them. And we usually do. And, and so we're, we're very much fixated on users, not on competitors. And that so far has been good for us. There's so much out of that, but I just want to, you know, highlight to the listeners what you said. Any business worth being in has competitors. Otherwise, why be there? Unless you're just an absolute innovator with something brand new. The second thing that reminds me of is I, when I was young and at, at Pepsi, when I first started my career, they sent me to learn with a guy named Dr. Deming. And I took different seminars with him. And personally, the guy shaped my life. And 
I still to this day think about the things that he's taught and I've written a book about what I call Transform Your Business with Dr. Deming's 14 points. But a huge part of what he talked about was that idea of quality is in the eye as a customer. That is the ultimate measure of quality. Not He was not a guy advocating, oh, let's get more efficient in the way that we do this or that. Those are tools, but if you miss the customer, as he said, I remember him saying it in one of the seminars, he said, you can take a company with the best quality management in the world and it can go out of business because it's not in touch with the customer. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with that more. Yeah. And it's pretty easy to do. And it's been proven many, many times, maybe not going out of business, but losing their stature, you know, and I think you could point to almost any company, including the ones that are good to great, that are no longer great, you know, mm. and it might not even be good. And it's usually because what got them there, they lost because they started trying to protect themselves from losing and or protect their stature or get to the 27th quarter in a row of growth or whatever it was. And they stopped focusing on the customer and the, and the experience. Mm. Well, a lot of great lessons there. So now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Yeah, you know, I have a lot of, I could go through a litany of mistakes I've made in my career, things that didn't work. And I'll start by saying, I don't really regret almost any of them. I mean, I view you know, kind of what most people call failure as I just don't use the word, you know, to me, the mistakes are, are come with the territory and it's all about learning. I feel the same way about success. I just don't think it's worth thinking about very much. It's all about learning and going forward. And so, so I'm not, I'm not emotional about my mistakes in this case, and, but they're interesting, you know, and it's, and you have to figure out what to learn from inside our company. We make more mistakes per, per day than I'll bet most companies per person, you know, but we also try more things. I think the, um, I love the, uh, the analogy that one time when I was long ago, I was at a company and, and the CEO asked the guy who was a friend of mine, the CEO happened to be Jack Welch. And he said, uh, what's the difference between company X and us? And he said, well, company X takes a hundred swings a year and gets 90 hits. And, and our company, GE at the time, takes a thousand swings a year and gets 300 hits. And GE was much, much more successful than that other company. And I think so it captures kind of how I feel about it. Now, when it comes to personal investing, you know, and I'll talk about personal investment, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've invested in many things that, that lost money or, or went bust. I've, I've done angel investing. I've done everything. My biggest mistake is actually one where I made money. So you've probably had this kind of scenario before. I went to lunch with one of my um, board members the first month when I was at Logitech. His name's Neil Hunt. And I don't think he even knows this story. And Neil and I had a talk and I said, so Neil, you know, I didn't know anything about the company you worked for. I said, what did you do today? And he said, well, I, I worked on an algorithm and he was the head of product. He said, I worked on an algorithm all day. I said, an algorithm, huh? What, what was it? And he said, well, it was an algorithm that was trying to help recommend users, recommend something for users. And, and so it, we have a recommendation already. And that recommendation is, gives them a rank of things that they might be interested in from one to 10. And it's based, it's completely data-based. He said, and the problem is because people experience, you use this, our service a lot. It actually doesn't change much for most people from time to time. So you get the same 10 recommendations every time. And if you use one of them, it comes off, but the, the order stays exactly the same. He said, so our question was, could we get people to engage more in our service if that was different? If I came in, instead of getting, you know, the same 10 things in a row every time, I got 
a different set. He said, so we tried putting a, we tried just taking one out of the order and moving it up. One of the 10 moved from number nine to number one. Another one we tried, we put a random number generator in there instead of it. And that had a big impact. Instead of ranking one to 10 like that, it would rejigger the order completely. And he said, uh, and then we tested those A, B, and C against each other. And he said, and I said, what happened? He said, well, what do you think happened? And I, I thought about it. I thought maybe the original way was better. He said it was. He said the original way was better because he said, I don't know why. And I don't, we don't really care why. We just want to know if the original is better. And I always thought, I like that story because I thought the original is better because people intuitively understand honesty. And if you try to be dishonest with an algorithm, you spot it. Okay. Mm. So I love that story so much. And I love the fact that they were doing that level of understanding that I immediately, when I got back to my office, I invested in the company. And I'm, I'm not a huge investor, but I, I put, you know, for me, a lot of money into the company. You know, I thought that's really fascinating. But I had this little voice in my head that I thought there's something uncomfortable about this because I just, I knew I didn't have any insider information, but I was uncomfortable with it for whatever reason as a board member. But I invested, you know, because I invested once in a while. And immediately the stock went out. So if, if I invested 100, it, it doubled within two months. And in fact, it went up 250% within six months. And at that point, I did what any smart investor would do. I sold half of it. I let the rest ride. That doubled again. And at that point, I got uncomfortable. I thought, this is a board member. What do people think? Maybe they'll think I've gotten insider information from my board member. He's high enough up I could have. And I don't want that perception. And what if this thing goes up even more and then so I sold it off the stock ended up going from making this up from 100 it, it went up 30 fold three zero the company is Netflix <laughs> and so that was the worst investment choice now what what did I learn from it I should have gone to my general counsel and said did I do anything wrong here mm. and my general counsel she would have said of course not there's nothing wrong with that. You didn't have any information. There's nothing wrong with investing in companies that you're are on your board. And then I, if I was still uncomfortable, I could have gone to the entire board and said, I've invested in Neil's company. Do you think I did anything wrong here? And the answer would have been, no, of course you didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with investing in Neil's company. But I didn't, so I lost that upside. But I don't really mind because I'm not so financially, I'm not so money focused. And I thought it's a good learning about communication, you know, just making sure that you're always communicating things that are and getting to the bottom of what you're uncomfortable with. Mm. So tell me what, let's review the lessons that you learned from this. Well, like I said, I think, I think number one is trust your instincts. Mm. My instinct was I like the honesty of, of an algorithm, but I even liked more the fact that they were using algorithms for something that seems so judgmental normally. Mm. So normally you get a recommendation from somebody and it's based on, you know, some, star tomatoes, you know? And in this case, it was really based on what people liked, what people watched. So I love that. So I think trusting your, your intuition on things when you hear it is really good. Yep. The second thing I learned from it is, you know, make sure you, when you do make an investment, don't be afraid to hold on. I think you talk a lot about, about controlling your losses, but there's also, there's a time, you know, if you can yep. afford it, you just stay in. I think most people probably get, I think most people get out of investments too early normally if they're on their way up. And then the third one is, you know, communicate. I mean, if you've got something you're uncomfortable with, communicate, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a world. I, I don't regret doing it because I, you know, my integrity is everything. But had I communicated better, that I would be more money in my pocket. Mm, mm. 
maybe I can share a few things that I take away. There's three things that come up in my mind, and they may be a little bit coming from different angles. But in the world of finance, there's something called the Altman Z-score. And the Altman Z-score was Professor Altman came up with this idea of if we combine these different measures, we'll be able to identify the probability that the company is going to go bust. And it's a very simple measure, and it's stood the test of time. I was in Hong Kong recently, or not, not too long ago, for an, an event, and a guy from uh, Reuters, Thomson Reuters, got up and said, we've been developing an algorithm to try to predict bankruptcy. And he went through this whole long speech about what they've been doing. It was fascinating. I mean, really, really interesting. And then people had a lot of questions about what they were doing. And, and I just raised my hand. I said, you know, we already have this model. The original model is the Altman Z-score. So my question to you is, to what extent does the $100 million that you spent developing this algorithm outperform the Altman Z-score? He said, by a tiny amount. <laughs> and it made me think what you said is, you know, sometimes the original is better, or maybe from a cost perspective. So the idea is there's a lot of knowledge that we have in this world that should not just be thrown away. Can I, can I contribute to that one? Yeah. I think there's another way to look at that, which is there's kind of a, you could use the Altman Z-score another way in this case. You could say, you could literally say, what's the probability that, that this company is going to, maybe I'll lose everything I gain. What's the probability that I lost everything I invested? Hmm. Very low, very low. And I think too often we look at it and say, oh my gosh, it's up so high. What if I lose it all? You're not going to lose it all normally. Yeah. Yeah. It, it scares you in getting out of things you should. Well, and that goes to my second point, which in the world of finance, we always say, let your winners run. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest mistakes, and I try to teach in the courses and stuff that I've always been advocating, is the idea that you should look at your, your investing period over decades. So if you're 30 years old and you want to retire when you're 60, that's 30 years. But don't forget, you're probably going to live to be 90. That's another 30 years. We're talking about 60 years. When you put 60 years into your head, it Absolutely. helps you to think, yeah, that, just, let that, just let it run. And that's another second learning. And that's, my one. that's my favorite one because I think everybody thinks too short term. Yeah. And I don't in my business and I, and I don't anymore in my investing, but in, probably in those early days I did. The last one is something related since I am a CFA charter holder and also was the president of CFA Society here in Thailand. We focus a lot on ethics, and I think that's a differentiating point for chartered financial analysts designation. And I teach ethics, and I have a story that I tell about I was working for a particular company, and then I left that company, went across the street, and I implemented the exact same method that I had developed at that company. And I had a, all the contract, everything in my contract said I could not do that. So technically I was against the contract. But of course I'm an ethical guy and I tell my students, you know, did I break code of ethics? Did I break the contract? And they say, of course you did. You know, you can't take work that you've done at a company and set up a new company using that work. And I told them, I didn't break that. And they say, well, what do you mean? And I said, I went and talked to the CEO of the company. I said, the reason why you asked me, basically they said, we don't want to do this type of research anymore. It's not really what we're about. So therefore there's not really a position for you. So I went back and I said, look, I want to go across the street and set up my own firm using this stuff. You said that you're not going to use it. Would you mind if 
I used it? Would you exempt me from the clauses in the contract? And they said, no problem. And so I was exempted from that and allowed to go across the street. And the company is Maybank, which is a, a Malaysian bank. And my boss was Montri, the guy who did it. And it was a friendly agreement. And I've always had a friendly relationship there. But it's the point. The point I want to get across is ask. And that's what yeah. you just said. You know, I just could have asked, you know, nothing wrong. And if someone says, no, 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 that's not, that's not okay, fine. But don't keep it inside. Ask. I totally agree. That's a very, very good point. Yeah. Just ask. All right. So based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, think about that young person out there that, that is getting some really interesting something. They're hearing about something that they like. They like this company or whatever. What one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Well, I think the most important thing and for most investors, you're usually not going to have a board member that you suddenly say, oh, I hope nobody thinks I knew something I didn't. I think the most important thing is to take a long-term view on everything in your life. Because if you, if you live, if you take a long-term view on things, you don't get caught up in the, in the news cycles. You get caught up in the secular trends. Inside of Logitech, the best things that, that I've been involved with have, have been to put us in a position in the, to follow long-term secular trends. And as you said, you know, you'll, you'll have ups and downs and everything else. But if you really, if you bet on long-term trends, you rarely go wrong. Great advice. So last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? I have a whole lot of goals. You know, I do a round of goal setting every year where I go through every area of my life. I wouldn't say any of them is number one in this case. I have goals across work, health, family, everything. What do I hope happens in, over the next 12 months? I really hope that we'll make Logitech tremendous progress on diversity and inclusion and more tremendous progress on the environment. Great. Well, we'll look for that. You know, I have to add in one other thing that I didn't say that I took away. And, you know, when I think about the stock market in particular, but when I think about life, it's kind of a, like a sine wave, peaks and troughs. And what you described was trying to kind of cut the, the peaks and the troughs off to try not to bring the emotion into those two areas. And I think that that's a really important point that I wanted to highlight. And I remember someone used to say to me, failure isn't fatal, success isn't final. And that's so- That's a quote we use in our company. Yeah. Failure is rarely fatal, but success is never final. Exactly. So that, I think it's great, great advice. And for, the, for people listening, when you're managing teams, I think it's also important that you don't bring too much over-enthusiasm to success and too much negative enthusiasm to failure. Keep a steady keel. Yeah. All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember to go to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals to claim your 30% discount on the Valuation Masterclass. As we conclude, Bracken, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, I think just stay focused on the long term and you'll have a long, successful life. Amen. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying I'll see you on the upside.